So with that thought in mind, let's uh, get into the word and then we'll leave time for us to come bring the worship team back on and, and respond in song to the Lord. So Romans chapter 8, I'll ask you to grab your Bible, turn to Romans chapter 8, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, then comes the book of Romans in the New Testament, 8th chapter. If you need a Bible this morning, Ron can uh, put one in your hands if you just raise your hand. And there's a little note page in your bulletin. If you don't know the drill, grab this note page. That'll be of some help along the way. And church family, standing on the promises of God is the summer series that we're working through. And today we are eight weeks into this series. And it's about a 12-week series. And so we're about uh, two-thirds of the way through this together. And are you ready to take up yet another promise of God this morning with me? Yeah, I'm glad you are because that's what's going to happen. No choice. It's just the way it's going to be. But uh, we're going to be looking at this morning, again, another of the great promises of God to us. And as we start this time together, just remember with me, way back from week number one, a definition for the promises of God. I, I just really like this. I feel like it captures kind of what we're talking about together. And so if you haven't been with us, this would be helpful. God's promises are the irrevocable guarantees that he gives to his children so they can live daily with confident faith, even while they wait patiently for him to work. When God makes a promise, we can count on it. Yes, we can. It's an irrevocable guarantee. That means it's unchanging. It's never pulled off the table. It is never altered over time. If God gives us a promise, man, we can stand on that promise. Numbers 23:19 declares this. God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should change his mind. Does he speak and then not act? Does he promise and not fulfill? The answer, of course, is that God never makes a promise that he doesn't fulfill. Do you believe that today? You should believe that. That is the truth. Our God never breaks a promise. In fact, someone has noted that God's entire communication with us, fallen sinful humanity, can really be put into two words. I promise. If you stop and think about your Christian life, you think about God and his relationship with us, that really works. God could simply say, I promise. And then all the things that he has said come true. 2 Corinthians 1 verse 20. This is an, an incredible verse. It talks about the fact that all the promises of God are yes in who? In the Lord Jesus. And that is why through him... We are able to utter our amen to God for his glory. When Jesus died, when he rose again, he guaranteed that we who have been adopted into heaven's family through him, we get to inherit all of the promises of God. They are all yes through Jesus. God never, uh, he never overpromises, he never underdelivers, and when he makes a promise, you and I can count on that. Good promises from our God. And good is the word that dominates our morning together as we take up yet another promise today. God's promise to always work good for those who love him. Now, this comes out of Romans chapter 8 and verse 28. In fact, church family, why don't we just together read this right off the screen? Would you read it out loud with me? Let's do it together. And we know that in all things... God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. You believe it? Let's pray together. 
Heavenly Father, we do believe this. This is a promise from you to us. We'd like to understand it better. So we ask your spirit to, to simply move amongst us, help us to focus, give us your truth. We'll seek to hear not only your truth, but, but act on it, because that's what you want from us. For your glory, we give you these moments in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Several years ago, a survey was sent to a number of prominent American pastors and seminary professors asking them this question. If you were stranded on a desert island and you could have only one book of the Bible, which one would you choose? That was the question. Now, that question comes with some options, doesn't it? In fact, it comes with 66 options, to be exact, because there are 66 books in the Bible. So don't answer out loud, but, but if that question was put to you, which book would you choose from the Bible if you were stranded on a desert island and you could only have one book? What book would you choose? The overwhelming majority of these pastors and professors said, well, I'd want the letter to the Roman church. I would want the book of Romans. And then they were asked this question. If you could only have one chapter of the Bible on your desert island, which chapter would you choose? Guess which chapter? Chapter 8? Yes, Romans chapter 8. That was their answer. Uh, uh, without, uh, I mean, hands down, give me Romans chapter 8. And, of course, that is where we find ourselves this morning. The Holy Spirit, who inspired Paul to write the Roman letter, thinks in this part of the letter that is very important for those who follow Jesus in saving faith, who have trusted Jesus as Savior and Lord, to, to be able to have an unshakable security in their relationship with their God. Jesus wants us to know with a certainty that we are in him, that he is in us, and that he's got a firm grip on us, and he's never going to let us go. And so Romans chapter 8 is all about the security of the Christian. He wants us to know that somewhere down the road, five years, ten years, a hundred million years from now, God is not going to let us go. He's not going to lose his grip. We're not going to fall out of his hand. Romans chapter 8 is devoted to the Christian's security. And that's where we are this morning. And if you stop and think about this with me, Romans chapter 8 just affirms this truth over and over. The opening verses of the chapter tell us just how utterly complete our forgiveness is through faith in Jesus. We have been declared legally not guilty by God in the courtroom of heaven through our faith in Jesus. Justified, those opening verses of the chapter talk about. That is security. We have been forgiven. We're told that the Holy Spirit comes to live inside of us, actually comes to take up residence in us when we put our faith in Jesus. To have God living inside of you, that's security, isn't it? We're told in Romans 8, 26 and 27 that the Holy Spirit prays for us all of the time with groanings that are so deep and so passionate they can't even be put into language, any other language than that which God can understand. But the Holy Spirit is praying for us. That creates security for you and I. We're told that God has adopted us as his sons and daughters, and that makes us legal, legal heirs of all that heaven has to offer. So we are part of the family of God. That brings security to our relationship. Then we come to verses 28 to 31 of this chapter, and we're told 
that God has an incredible plan for you and me who are in Jesus through saving faith. Plans that make it essential that he not let go of us. Plans that make it essential that we remain securely in his grip so that those plans get accomplished. And it is in this little four-verse section, 28 to 31, that God gives us as well this amazing, irrevocable promise to always work good in your life and in mine if we're in Jesus. Let me read the verses for you. You can follow along in your Bible. I'm going to read out of the NIV this morning, the New International Version. Here's what it says. Under the inspiration of the Spirit, And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? And we say, Amen and Amen. That is right. That's worth an applause for sure. If verse 31 sounds vaguely familiar, like, man, I seem like I've hung out with that verse just recently. You, in fact, did, if you were here on the Sunday morning when we talked about God's promise of victory, because that's verse 31. If you are in Jesus, God says, if God is for you, if I'm for you, who can possibly be against you and win, right? You are going to win because you're in me. So, so if that verse sounds familiar, that's why. Now, within these four verses that tie directly into this overarching theme of the security that we have in Jesus, God is going to share with us four powerful truths about himself that are designed to encourage us to rest confidently, securely in our relationship with him. And these four truths, when considered together, as we are going to do, I believe will inject a fresh dose of joy, but also assurance into your relationship with your God. Joy and confidence that that we need as we do this Christian life in a fallen world. And then he very much wants us to have both this joy and this assurance. So on your note page, God says near the middle of your page, you can rest securely in me today, fellow Christian, because you know first that I am always working behind the scenes in your life. You can rest securely in me because you know I am always working behind the scenes in your life. Now, brothers and sisters, let me ask you, do you believe that today? You believe that? You truly believe that? God is always working behind the scenes. He wants us to know that about him. If you came today to the Bible church and you're, you're kind of heavy hearted or maybe you're discouraged or, or you're weary or, or tomorrow's looking just a little bit blurry and fuzzy for you and, and maybe you're anxious and uncertain and, 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 and possibly even afraid, well, this is a great morning for you to be at the Bible church because your Heavenly Father wants to talk to you about his role in your life when it comes to those kinds of things. In the opening phrase of verse 28, Paul says to every Christian, and we know that in all things God works. Let's begin by circling the word know and consider that word together for just a moment. The Holy Spirit through Paul's pen carefully chooses a Greek word here. In the original, this passage was written in Greek, 
And so Paul lands on a, on a Greek word for no that means absolute certainty. It means unshakable certainty. No doubting whatsoever is the idea. We know this, Paul says. Now, no one who is in Jesus, truly a child of the king, by faith in his cross and the resurrection, ever needs to say, man, my life's sort of unraveling right now. My marriage or my job or my kids or my health. And I sure do hope God wants to be involved. We never have to say that. The Holy Spirit says through Paul's pen, and we know with absolute certainty. What is it that we know, Paul? What do we know? We know that in, what are the next two words? All things. You might want to underline those two words, all things. Church family, what is included in all things? Everything. Not most things or some things, right? All things, no exclusions, no holdouts, no, 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 nothing overlooked, nothing forgotten. All things, even the death of a child? Yes. Even September 11th, 2001? Yes. Uh, that cancer diagnosis that I received from my doctor? Even my rebelling teenager? That's all things? Even a really stupid, sinful choice on my part? All things. All things means all things. It's not rocket science, right? And we know that in all things, God, next word, works. Which is another way of saying God is actively bringing his power and his presence to bear into every single situation or circumstance, every crack and corner of my life, no exceptions, God is working in all of it. Do you believe it? Do you believe it? Yeah. Not just some, but all of the things in my life. All things God is working. Fellow Christian, I hope you see that this part of verse 28 is really, I think, a a resounding rebuttal to those who believe that God exists. He's there. He's, he's, he exists. But that they, they look at God as sort of a kind of a, a grand watchmaker who, who's out there somewhere. He created the world. He created us. And, and he wound the whole thing up and then just said, well, I've done my part. I'm finished. I'm not going to be involved anymore. And people, it's up to you to get to me however you can. There are people who look at God that way. We call them deists. That's not what they would call themselves. They wouldn't call themselves anything other than they affirm that there is a God because they can't argue with that thought. But they deny that God is, is uh, in their life, actively involved in their life. They chafe under the message that that they're a sinner who needs a Savior and that, that God is personal and relational. God is big and he's out there and, and evolution doesn't work and so there had to be a creator God, but you, you can't relate to him. And so he becomes like this, this grand, uninvolved watchmaker. However, Romans 8.28 says that's not true, doesn't it? And we know 
that in all the things of our life, God works, actively works. Sometimes he will work in very overt, tangible, visible, measurable ways that we will look at and we will say, wow, that was such a God thing. That was so God. God worked that out. Did you see God in that? He was so visible. But there are other times when we don't think God is is working at all. And yet this verse is telling us that God always is at work behind the scenes of our life. And I love knowing that. Do you love knowing that? Yeah. There's security, brothers and sisters, in that truth. On your note page, I included Colossians 1, 16, 17 as a reminder to us of just how deep God's working goes. Check this out. This is verse uh, chapter 1 of Colossians. For by him, that is by Jesus or through Jesus, what's the next two words? All things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things, what? Hold together. Does that sound like a God who's involved? That is that's exactly what that sounds like. Four times in two verses we read this phrase, all things. Right this moment, our Savior Jesus is so at work behind the scenes in our lives that absolutely everything, right down to the smallest atom of our existence, is being held in place by him. And that's what these verses are saying. That's how at work God is, Jesus is, in your life, in my life. Now, bear in mind an atom. Think about an atom. There are billions and billions of atoms just in the ink of a single period at the end of one sentence on your Bible page. Look at that period. Billions and billions of atoms And these verses are saying that the God of the universe, whom you know through faith in Jesus, is behind the scenes directing every single one of those atoms, holding each one of them together, holding them all together in a perfect harmony. And you know what? He has never lost control of even one of them, ever. Ever. He's never messed up even once. All things are held together by him right now. And he's not even breaking a sweat. And if he can direct the subatomic universe with its bazillion times a bazillion parts, if he can direct that with perfect precision, it is no problem at all. For him to be at the very same time behind the scenes directing the not so subatomic parts of your life or my life. What a great truth. And we know that in all things God works. But brothers and sisters, truth be told, if verse 28 stopped right there, that would leave us wondering, wouldn't it? Would leave us wanting. Okay, so God is working behind the scenes in my life. But the real question is, how is he working? 
in my life behind the scenes? That's a more pressing question. It brings us to the bottom of that little note page and to number number two, the truth that God says, you can rest securely in me because you know that I'm always working for your what? For your, your good. Your good. That's God's promise. That's his irrevocable, unchanging promise to you as a lover of Jesus. That God is going to be always working for your good. And we know, verse 28, that, all, that in all things God works for the good of those who love him. Our sense of safety and security, our confidence in our God, our joy in Jesus will never be, brothers and sisters, what it could be if we do not own this promise. If we do not believe this promise, we have to get this. You can rest securely in me, God says, because you know in the deepest part of your heart that I'm always going to work, but I'm always only going to work for your good. Is that a difference maker? Well, one person thinks it's a difference maker. (laughs) Is it a difference maker to know that truth? Yes, of course it is. However, before we can get to to this, we need to to realize what verse 28 is not saying. For example, it's not saying that all things are good, right? Verse 28 is not saying that. We know there's a whole lot of bad in our, in our fallen world. And, and verse 28 is not some kind of pie-in-the-sky Christian salve that we smear all over everything to make it feel good. Something else verse 28 doesn't say is that all things work out the way I want them to. My good, right? Like, as I define good. We might wish that verse 28 said that, but it doesn't say that. God will work good even in the midst of the bad in my life, but not always the way that I would work it out if I was calling the shots. As well, this verse does not say that God causes all things. God gets blamed for a lot of stuff he doesn't cause, right? The Bible makes it very clear that, that God is not the cause of sin. He, he does not create evil. He never tempts anyone to sin or to, 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 to evil. But because he is all-powerful and he is all-knowing and he's the supreme sovereign over all things, he can take anything, including evil, including sin, and he can work it so that it will accomplish a good end for you or for me. That's how powerful he is and how in control. We'll unpack that a little more in a moment. One more thing that verse 28 does not say is that all things have a happy ending here on earth. Sometimes we will try to will this verse to say that, but it does not say that because we are so much creatures of time and space and the here and the now. We try to force the good to happen in our little box, right, in our little world. But our God is much bigger than that. He is infinitely bigger than that. And our God doesn't, doesn't really respond well to being put in boxes. But we try to put him in boxes and make the good as we would define it. And in the time that we define it, God's bigger. So while verse 28 doesn't say any of those things, it does say this. And we know that in all things, in every single circumstance, God is working for the good of those who love him. Very important that we catch that last phrase. This promise is only for those who are 
in Jesus, right? They're the only ones who can lay claim to this promise. You must be in Jesus by faith. It's only for those who have admitted their sins, have confessed this to God, cried out for forgiveness, professed their belief that Jesus died on the cross to pay the sin debt they could never pay. He rose from the dead victorious over that sin and over the grave. And, he is, and, and, and that person has determined to live from that point forward, serving the Lord Jesus and loving him to the best of their ability with his help. Verse 28 is only for the Christian. It is for nobody else. And if that is what you are today, and I trust that it is, don't leave today if it's not. But if this is you today, God is saying, behind the scenes of your life, or in full view where you can see me, I am always working for your good. I promise. Amen. Amen. No matter what the situation, no matter the, the circumstance, no matter how desperate or overwhelming or painful or unfair or cruel, I am working for your good, God says, a good that will enable you to live for and love and serve and honor me just a little bit better tomorrow than you did today. What a tremendous promise for the church and for the individual believer in Jesus. Now, if you flip that note page over at the very top, God is essentially saying to us in verse 28, I will never miss an opportunity to work good in your life. Oh, don't you love to know that? I will never miss a single opportunity to work good in your life, ever. Not even one time will I miss that opportunity. Now, curious as to how this would hold up under closer examination, I sought out some of the characters in the Bible that I know experienced some really not good stuff, really bad stuff. And I just wanted to look and say, uh, their hearts belong to God. And so I wanted to look and say, did did God work there? Did he work and, and did he work good? And so you look at a list of these Bible characters. They're very familiar to you on the left side. Take Joseph, for example. You know his story. If you have ever known the pain in your life of rejection or betrayal by someone that you loved, then Joseph should be close to your heart because this is his story. You could relate to him. Not only is he rejected by his own brothers, they sell him into slavery, don't they? But God is working behind the scenes even through that act of being sold into slavery and then, and then from every other earthly perspective we could look at, life's, uh, Joseph's life just gets worse, doesn't it? Falsely accused, he's imprisoned, and all of this innocently so. But God is working behind the scenes and positioning him to be able to be promoted, ultimately to become second in command over Egypt, and thus save his people from starvation. Was God working good? It didn't always look like that. But God was doing that. Or I think of Elijah. We shared his, his life story here a few months ago as part of another series. And at one point, if you remember, life gets so bad for Elijah that he wants to die and laments the day that he was even born. A bunch of really bad people want to kill him. So he runs out into the desert and he hides and he's totally discouraged, despairing. 
There's no food. There's no water. Basically, he gives up. And he says, God, I'm the only one in the entire nation of Israel who still follows you. And God says what? That's not true. That's not true. There are 7,000 others who have not given up on me yet. And so, Elijah, things are 7,000 times better than you think they are, even in this moment. And what does God do? He brings him food and water. He ministers to him. He encourages him and gets him back on track so that his ministry, the life of ministry that God called him to, could be fulfilled. But it looked pretty bad there for a while. But even in that, God was working good. Or think about Jonah. You know his story? Yeah? God says, go. Jonah says, no. And God says, oh. And Jonah says, whoa. From inside of the belly of a great fish, right? God was working, though, not only to show this man that that he's willing to pursue him into raging storms and, and down to the depths of the ocean, but that he's also willing to pursue a pagan godless people who need to know him. So God was working good, even in the midst of what looked to Jonah like a lot of bad. Or think about Peter. You know Peter's story. He's Jesus' lead disciple, and at one point he gets filled up with pride, and he announces that his devotion to Jesus is, is not excelled by anybody else. All may abandon you, Lord, but I will never abandon you. And he says this on the night before Jesus is crucified. Remember this? Yeah. Well, of course, we know he does abandon Jesus, denies that he even knows him, not once or twice, but three times. And he's crushed by what he's done. It's terrible. He thinks he's finished, that he's all washed up. It's all bad from where Peter sits. But God uses Peter's pride, uses his brokenness as part of the the purifying and humbling of this man so that he will be the perfect leader that the early church needs to get its footing and begin to grow. It looked bad, but God had good. Now, at the bottom of that list of great Bible characters, there's a line in red that says, me. That would be you or me right now. What's the situation or the circumstance that you are in right this moment? Maybe things are going great for you, but what if they're not? You're in this place with a lot of bad going on all around you. And, 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 and you're wondering, what is the good that God would be working? And there are question marks right now on that line, that red line, because you don't know yet. But look down the far right column. Perhaps what God is doing in this moment, you don't know it yet, but he is positioning you. He is providing for you. He's promoting you. He's purifying you. Who knows what he's doing? But his promise to you has not changed. I will always work good in your life. That's my promise. Can you rest in that? God never misses an opportunity to work good in the lives of his sons and daughters. So have you lost your job? Or someone you really care about uh, has broken your heart? Or you recently got news from the doctor that fills you with fear? Or you've been betrayed, or you've been used or abused, or your financial world has been turned upside down, or or you've lost something that you can never, ever have back again in this life. 
If you are in Jesus, listen to me, brothers and sisters, if you are in Jesus, you have to know. You have to know that this is going to go good. Why? Why do you have to know that? Because God promised it to you. And He never breaks a promise. But Tim, it's really bad right now. It is so, so bad. My situation, my circumstance, it is the worst. I don't know how it could be any worse. If that would be your sentiment in this moment, can I ask you to do something really weird? Can I ask you to think about chocolate chip cookies? I said it would be weird. Chocolate chip cookies. They are one of life's little pleasures that is so good, right? Oh, especially when they just come out of the oven and, and, and there's this warm smell and, and they're just the amount of softness, the perfect softness, and you've got a tall glass of ice-cold milk. Are you thinking about that? Some of you in this room make some out-of-this-world chocolate chip cookies, and I know because I've had them. Now think about this. When you make those cookies, they taste great as they come out of the oven. But if you tried to eat the individual ingredients of those cookies, with the exception of the chocolate chips, I get it, I get it, right? (laughs) It would not be good. It would not be an enjoyable experience if you ate the, the individual ingredients, a mouthful of flour or a, or a stick of butter or, or oil or, or a, a tablespoon full of salt. That would be horrible. Those individual ingredients all by themselves are anything but good. But when they are all put together in the right amounts, in the right way, and then they're subjected to the heat... The, the, the stove, then they come out on the backside of that and they are delicious. God says, just, just imagine this, God is saying, I am working all of these ingredients in your life together, the individual parts that might in this moment be really unpleasant or hard or distasteful. I'm taking all of those things and I am working them to make something really good for you. Yeah. Fellow Christian, we will either grow through or be destroyed by the individual ingredients. And the the real key is what is my perspective? Am I really resting in this promise or just just talking about this promise. God says you can rest securely in your relationship with me because you know I'm always working behind the scenes and I'm always working for your good. And then third there on your note page, I am planning your future with perfect purpose. You need to know that. Verse 28, and we know that all things work together for good for those who love him, who've been called according to his what? His purpose. In other words, God says, if you are in my son by faith, your life has a great future and fulfills my purpose for you perfectly. Do you know that that God's purpose for mankind, his purpose for you, has never changed from the very beginning, from the time that that he first created man and woman in the Garden of Eden, back in Genesis chapter, uh, chapters 1, 2, 3? 
He says, I'm going to make man in my image. A creature who has a rational, emotional, moral, uh, relational, sinless nature, just like I do. I'm going to create a creature that can freely and fully interact with and fellowship with me. So he creates mankind, Adam and Eve. But what, what do they do? Well, God says, you have my image. You've been created in my image. But man messed that up, choosing sin and, and a rela- rather than a relationship with God. And in the process, the image of, of God in us is horribly distorted. It's effaced. Sin didn't erase God's image from us, but it effaced that image. It marred it. It distorted it. And so from Genesis 3 on, what has God been purposing? His purpose has been to restore both the image and the relationship between us and him that sin destroyed. Verse 29 and 30 talk about that. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son, the image of his son. We'll stop right there. What is God's purpose for every single follower of Jesus in this room? What is the purpose? He wants you to be an accurate reflection of Jesus. He is conforming you into the image of His Son. He's taking the image that sin has effaced and He is going to remake that. That's His purpose over time. Jesus, God in human flesh, brought God's image to us perfectly, sinlessly, and God says, and I'll use myself as an illustration, Tim, I purpose to take your sin-effaced image and your character and conform it over time as I work for your good into the image and character of Jesus so that you beautifully and accurately reflect Him. I have destined you to one day reflect my Son in your life perfectly. That's where I'm going with you, and I'm not going to stop. I promise. How long will God's conforming purpose take in my life? Well, it'll take the rest of my life. Right on up to the moment when either I step through death's door or Jesus comes and gets me. It's going to take that long. And that's the rest of the verse. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son, that he, Jesus, might be the firstborn, the preeminent one among many brothers, among many, many Christians who reflect the character, having trusted in Jesus. And those he predestined, he called. Those he called, he also justified. That is, he pronounced them not guilty. That's what the word means. And those he justified, he also glorified. He also gave them all the rights and the privileges of heaven. Now, there's enough theology packed into those two verses to keep a room full of Bible scholars busy for the rest of their lives. And, sadly, great controversy has raged in the church over words like foreknew and predestined. That was never the Holy Spirit's intent. But here's what God is really saying in these verses. He's saying, listen, I have you firmly in the grip of my purpose. You don't need to doubt that. I called you through the cross of Jesus. You heard the message. You believed that message. Because that is true, I have justified you. I've declared you not guilty, forgiven. I will glorify you. 
I will bring you safely to heaven where the image of my son and his character will be put on display fully forever. My purpose for you will be realized. It will be accomplished. It cannot be otherwise. And that's the big picture, isn't it? Now, you've got to know this isn't the only place that this truth is being declared in Scripture. Look on your note page. It's Philippians 1.6. In fact, look on the screen rather than the note page. Let's read this aloud together, church family. Let's read it like we believe it. Let's do that. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Do you believe that? (laughs) I am planning your future with perfect, perfect precision. That's what God said. Did you notice the verb tenses in verse 30 of Romans chapter 8? Everything's in the past tense, isn't it? Every one of these is in the past tense. Even the word glorified. So certain is God's purpose for you, brother, sister, in Jesus. So certain is His purpose for you to be fulfilled. And so, per, so, so certain will it be accomplished that even the word glorified is in the past tense, as if to say it's a done deal. Absolutely everything in your life, I'm going to work in such a way that my good purpose for you is realized, you reflecting more and more of my son's character, which is the greatest possible good that I could ever do for you, and I will not stop working this good until you are with me, glorified. Yeah, it's too good. <laughs> and then God says, oh, and by the way, I am 1,000% for you. It's the last truth, and it comes out of verse 31. What then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He's not just 100% for us, right? That would be a man number. That would be a human number. He is a thousand percent for you today. Yeah? A thousand percent for us. Who can be against us? What's the answer to that, brother, sister? No one, nobody, nothing. That's great news. And nothing like the confidence that comes from knowing that you're on the winning side. Man, whatever the struggle, the battle, the war, the situation, the circumstance that you're dealing with right now or that you will deal with in the future, it is one in which God is working behind the scenes or visible out in front and he's working for your good and he has a well-defined purpose for your life and nothing can stand against that purpose or threaten it to never come to pass. God has declared that he's 1,000% for you. What that means, brothers and sisters, we never give up on him, right? Even if it looks really tough, we don't give up on him. Because he said, I will always work good for you. Amen? Amen. And amen. Let's pray together. Wow, what a promise. Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, Holy Spirit, how we thank you for Romans chapter 8, 
verse 28 and its surrounding truth. We can do this thing called the Christian life, not in our own strength or power or by our own will, but we can do this because you have said you will do all that we need. You will work the good that will accomplish your purposes for us. Conformed to to the image of your son Jesus, to his character and likeness, glorified with you forever. Oh, how we thank you for this promise. My heart goes out especially to those who might be in this room this morning who who came in feeling like there was a 10,000-pound weight pushing them down, weighing them down, on the very, very edge of, of losing all hope. Lord Jesus, thank you for meeting them in this place, in this moment, through your word, taking that weight off of their shoulders. There is good coming. There is good. Help them to believe that and to walk out these doors different than they came in. For all of us, Lord, we'll be in this place of of needing to remember this promise sooner or later. So may you burn it into our hearts, into our minds. We'd love to now just sing to you about the truths that we've been sharing. Thank you for letting us do that as a response to your truth. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.